Well, what I want to talk about tonight is, um, is kind of a, an essential question. Why do we practice mindfulness? Why do we practice insight meditation? And so uh, before I talk about my thoughts on that subject, I thought I'd open it up to hear from any of you who would like to share. Why do you practice? towards catastrophic thinking and my mind running away with me. And it can be positive and it can be negative. So that this is a very good centering device for me. Thank you. Over there. Yeah. Um, I haven't been doing it very long, about six weeks, I guess. But um, I got a few negative thoughts that I, I seem to get obsessed with sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's a relief, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah. Um, I guess for me, it's to try to minimize the amount of self-inflicted suffering. I think that's true for a lot of us. <laughs> we do a lot of ourselves. Yes. Right. Well, there's so many things that we can't really control. And so uh, what we can control is our relationship to them. So I think you've discovered that. <laughs> yeah. Anyone else? Yes. Teaches you to pay attention. Pay attention. The number one rule in mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Pay attention. Okay, well then I wanted to start out by reading a quote from an ancient text called Nagarjuna's Precious Garland. Your life dwells among the causes of death like a lamp standing in a strong breeze. So it's true that we um, don't really know how much time each one of us has in this life. 
Um, this is really one of those um, unknowable mysteries for us as human beings. We just don't know. Um, I was giving a talk uh, last month at our Coastside Sangha, kind of a sister community that meets in uh, Montara. They meet at the, um, there's a lighthouse and a hostel there, and there's a building that's, you know, right next to the rocks where the waves are crashing. And, and um, as I was sitting there, I was thinking, well, I mean, there could be a tidal wave to come and sweep us away at any moment. I mean, it happened in Southeast Asia and Sri Lanka and Thailand. It could, it could happen. So, um, so this concept of time and how long we have in this life really, really interests me. And if we look at the entire span of our lives, um, that's saying if we um, are lucky enough to live into old age, um, if we look at the entire span, um, as children, probably we were not practicing mindfulness and meditation. Is there anyone here who was practicing as a child? Oh, a person over there. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's wonderful. It's very rare in our culture, um, though, for children to practice. And, and of course, in Asia, um, there are um, young boys and girls who enter the monasteries and the convents and and begin to practice. But in our culture, um, I think it's extremely rare to find children who, who really practice consistently. And then um, young adults uh, typically um, are just filled with busyness and filled with lots of energy and making all these decisions about, um, you know, where to go to school or uh, what relationships to have or what careers to have. and there's all this busyness, and um, or maybe they have young families with young children. That's kind of a 24-hour job. It's very hard to find time then to really have a serious practice. And I'm not saying it's impossible. I see there's some young people here tonight, and I think that's that's wonderful. But again, it's kind of rare that as a young adult that you would really cultivate a serious practice with all that other stuff going on. And then when we're quite elderly, um, we may not have the focus and the concentration to practice, or we may be ill a lot. And this is what happens in old age. So looking at the entire span of a human life, um, there really is a relatively short window of time where we have to really engage in a serious practice. And also, to my mind, this human birth that we have is something that's um, very special. There's a Buddhist tale, that um, an old Buddhist tale, that says that the, the chances of your having a human birth are the same as the chances of this, there's a great turtle swimming um, through the oceans of the world. And that great turtle, big turtle, um, 
decides to surface, get a breath of air. So he comes up somewhere out there in the ocean. And right at the spot where he comes up, there's a log, big log floating with a hole in the log. And as he comes up, his head happens to go right up through that hole, fits through that hole, and gets his breath of air. And the chances, the tale says, the chances of your having a human birth are the same as the chances of that happening with the turtle. So, so here we are. We have this, um, to my mind, an incredibly special gift. I mean, we're walking and talking, thinking creatures. We have the capacity to love and to hate and to give, to take, and to practice. And um, as far as I know, we're the only creatures on the earth who can sit in meditation, who can watch their own minds at work, destructively and otherwise, (laughs) and um, who can consciously cultivate uh, loving kindness and compassion. So here we are. We have this gift. How do we choose to spend our life, our lives as human beings? And I think we really do have a choice. I mean, we wouldn't be here tonight if we believed that everything uh, about our lives was predetermined, that we were just cogs in some great cosmic wheel. Um, as human beings, we really do make choices and we create intentions for ourselves. This is very special. Um, The key is, uh, are we making our choices in life consciously? Are we uh, awake to those choices? Are we paying attention to, as you said, paying attention to our actions and to the consequences that come from our actions? So how do we choose to spend our time here? And of course, um, our culture presents some special challenges to us, really. I mean, let's face it, there's an endless variety of amusing and entertaining things that we can um, lose ourselves in from day to day. I mean, in the morning, there are lattes and espressos and delicious pastries, whatever it is that you are into, uh, endless possibilities for shopping and acquiring more beautiful things. I mean, we're all people of means relatively in the world. There are massage therapists on almost every corner, almost as many as Starbucks. (laughs) There's every kind of ethnic food to kind of titillate our taste buds. There's pills we can take to enhance our, our sex lives. And, you know, the list goes on and on. This is an amazing place. And in California, we don't really even have to um, contend with any much bad weather, really. I mean, I hear people complain if it rains too much or the temperature dips below 50. But really, I mean, I grew up on the East Coast, and I know what weather is. <laughs> this is This is kind of like a Garden of Eden, really. So I want to be uh, clear, though, that I'm not proposing um, that we give up 
all our pleasures in life. I mean, I enjoy a good latte in the morning as much as anyone. I kind of try to limit myself to one each week just so it stays special. But <laughs> um, but it really is our choice. I mean, do we want to spend um, all our precious time here in this life pursuing one sensual pleasure after another? One fleeting pleasure after another. It's definitely doable. And, you know, you don't have to work particularly hard at it, especially here in California. Um, Plenty of people do it, and I'm not saying that there's anything inherently wrong with that. But these are the kinds of choices, the kinds of things that I struggle with every day. Um, For example, you know, I could watch a movie or I could practice. Or I could lie down on the couch and take a nap. Or I could practice. Moment by moment, really, if we're, if we're truly practicing mindfulness, we're challenged to pay attention to how we choose to act in the world. And then, of course, there's the, the catch for those who um, really work hard at keeping that pleasure train rolling, that, that you know, pleasurable, one pleasurable experience after another going. Um, it, you, you quickly realize that you, you don't really have control over that train. Sooner or later, no matter how hard you work at keeping that train rolling, uh, eventually in life, you run up against something that that causes you pain. And none of us are really exempt from that. There's, you know, some crisis in life that comes along, no matter how hard you try to avoid it. (laughs) You know, someone that you love gets sick or dies, or you lose that job that you really covet or your lover leaves you for someone else. And, you know, all of us as human beings, we experience these times, you know, and these, the pain just kind of comes sweeping in on us like that tidal wave. And one thing I do know is that that's a very hard time to try to kickstart a, a meditation practice from scratch that will you know, help sustain us through that hard time or through that crisis. Practicing steadily day after day over time when our lives are relatively stable, that's what gives us the strength really to maintain our equanimity for those times when, you know, we may get swept away and pain and grief and disappointment that things aren't going the way we really want them to go. If we don't have, we haven't developed this kind of uh, mainstay, this anchor to hold us, this equanimity, um, it's very easy to just get swept away like, like the tidal wave. So, um, For newcomers to the practice, I just want to give you a lot of encouragement to keep going. It's 
And it is called a practice for a reason. I mean, you have to practice it. Um, it's kind of like going to the gym. When you first go to the gym, you look around, everybody's all buffed and strong and working out on their apparatus, and you kind of feel like, mm, gee, you know, <laughs> I don't think I'm good enough for this. But, you know, those people didn't get the way they are just like that. They worked at it. They spent time. They focused. They concentrated over time. So, and, and as we practice, we, we really do become like, like a great tree in life, you know, standing strong no matter what, you know, what failures we have, what sorrows and what pain. And I, I don't want to just focus on uh, the practice as a way of dealing with difficulties and pain and suffering. Um, my practice has, has helped me to really be much more present for the joy and the beauty in life. I mean, that's the other side of the coin, right? I mean, as human beings, that's, you know, that's our due. We have that as well. Uh, but it often um, seems that because we're not paying attention, really paying attention, we, we miss out on some of the really rich and satisfying some very simple things in life. Um, I like I like delicious food, and so one thing that I started to notice after I've been practicing for a while was if I have some some particularly delicious food that I'm eating, um, you know, I I put the first bite in my mouth, and before I'm really Enjoying it, I'm on to the second bite, and then the third bite. And I'm not really, I'm not, unless I catch myself, I'm not really truly present for that deliciousness of the first bite. And then the second bite, you know, it's all right there. But if we're not paying attention, we could be caught in our desire for always more, more, delicious, delicious, more. <laughs> So, um, again, why do we practice? We practice to wake up. We practice to develop the ability to pay attention to what we're doing with our time and to pay attention to what's really going on around us. And as we do that, we, we begin to put a deeper consciousness, a deeper awareness at the helm as we steer our way through life. And we begin to uh, stop blindly following the, the whims and the fancies and the cravings that our minds tell us are so important. Um, if left to its own devices, the human mind, always looking for pleasure and running away from discomfort and pain and looking out for number one, us, <laughs> me, can end up really dragging us here and there. And we find ourselves in places and situations where we, 
we don't, we don't really want to be. Um, I have a friend who, um, she has a weight problem and her doctor has told her that she really has to stay away from rich and starchy foods. Uh, but every once in a while, she says she, she finds herself in front of a plate of just that. <laughs> and it's like, no, no, I'm not supposed to be here. Um, my husband um, has a friend who um, has some financial difficulties. And um, he was telling me that um, his friend all of a sudden found himself writing a check for a new motorcycle. He just he loves motorcycles. He, he can't help it. <laughs> you know, there he was. Not supposed to be writing that check, but the cravings of the mind, they are so ephemeral, but so demanding at times. And, you know, sometimes it bears listening to them. Um, well, I'm a woman, and I happen to have a, um, a liking for shoes. Um, and now, in, in a cer- certain circumstance, um, this craving and preoccupation with shoes was actually quite useful. I mean, I just got back from a backpacking trip in southern Utah through these beautiful canyons, and and we did some, you know, quite difficult uh, hikes with heavy packs and, um, you know, over slippery stones and through a, you know, kind of fairly deep stream. And so my mind before I left was telling me, you better get some good hiking boots. You better get that. And I listened. And um, it was a good thing I did. I got a good pair of boots, and they really, um, they really came in handy. But then on the other hand, um, what I've noticed in the past is that sometimes I'll notice a picture uh, of shoes in a, in a magazine or um, a newspaper, and my mind would, uh, would start in, oh, you've got to get that pair of shoes. Look at those. Those are perfect. You've really got to go and get those. Where, what store are they in? You better get going right now and get them. And you know, as I you know, got deeper into my practice, I began to notice Speaking of motorcycles, I, um, I began to notice this and just kind of uh, waited and just didn't follow the instructions, the demands that my mind was making on me. And um, then I would, the next day I would kind of think back on that and I would be like, what was that about? Those shoes are not that important. I don't need those shoes. You know, um, but without my practice in the past, I felt driven by that. I would actually often go out and buy them and find out that I really didn't need them. Um, so, so the practice for me has given me you know, a lot of freedom from those kinds of insistent demands of the mind that really put us in situations that we don't really need to be in, don't want to be in, and shouldn't shouldn't be in for our own health and welfare. <laughs> and, uh, and we really do begin to be able to choose what our actions will be moment to moment. And we begin to consciously form um, intentions that become 
the basis of our actions rather than those whims and cravings of, of the mind. Um, I want to end my talk with a short passage from uh, one of the Dalai Lama's books. But before I do that, I'd just like to revisit that concept of time. Again, the fact that um, we don't know how much time we have, and our time here in this life, is it, it really is limited. And, of course, uh, I'm talking about death. And the topic of death in our culture is really a hard one. People don't like to think about it. People don't want to acknowledge it. Um, I heard a Tibetan Rinpoche um, several years ago who um, was giving a talk on death and dying. And he actually was touring our country, giving these talks. And he said that... um, Often he would be there in a room full of people and he would like to, he would often start his talks by asking, you know, is anyone in this room going to die? And, you know, people would kind of start looking around like, yeah, maybe, maybe him or her, but not me. <laughs> Nobody really seemed to, to grasp or want to pay attention to the fact that, um, that really we are mortal, mortal beings. And one of the uh, fortunate things to come out of uh, the very unfortunate Schiavo case is that it really did jog people's awareness of the fact that we are mortal beings. Um, I noticed this article, I just want to read a little bit from this article from the Chronicle last week. Um, the title is, It's a Tough Job Persuading People to Talk About Death. And the subtitle is, Battles Over Schiavo Have Helped Open Up a Formerly Taboo Subject, Some Experts Say. And the article goes on to say, um, Joe Stinson happily sensed a slight shift in American culture as he watched more than 200 people, most of them perfectly healthy, stop by his Colma funeral home over the past few weeks to talk about that most un-American of topics, death. They might as well put the dentists and the funeral directors in the same parking lot because nobody wants to go see them. Stinson said, CEO, Stinson is CEO uh, of Colma Cremation Funeral Services and former host of a radio talk show about death issues. The Florida woman's highly politicized, emotionally wrenching death last week continues to reverberate among those in the end-of-life business. Watching the Schiavo family's public ordeal has encouraged Americans to discuss the indiscussable before it's too late. That conversation, both private and cultural, is long overdue and ultimately healthy. Many hope that the woman's story 
would prod people to think deeper about their own mortality. I can't help thinking that all this sudden interest in advanced directives has similar undertones to the problem of death denial itself. That is, both are about our obsession with control, behind which is great fear, said Linda Blockman, founder of the Mothers Living Stories Project in Berkeley. The group helps terminally ill women to record their life stories to share. Fact is, none of us really have control when we die, Blockman said. The task is to face the inevitability of suffering and death in life, have conversations about living and dying throughout life, and then to let go and live more fully because our time here is limited. So that, that's, a wonderful, that's a wonderful thing. And of course, as mindfulness practitioners, um, probably we're already pretty aware of that. It's, it's nice to see that some people are starting to, to catch on. And um, so I hope that, um, that you won't see my bringing this up and talking about this as a, as a morbid preoccupation, but rather as a way of dealing with what is. I mean, this is our practice, our mindfulness practice, dealing with what is, the way things are. And the way things are is that we're, we're only here for... Um, a relatively short time. Um, and we don't know how long. And um, so I guess my, my point is so little time, so much to practice. Um, so I wanted to end by... reading a little bit from this book called Mind of Clear Light by the Dalai Lama, Advice on Living Well and Dying Consciously. He starts out um, this chapter with a little quote, short quote from the Buddha. Just Just as when weaving, one reaches the end with fine threads woven throughout, so is the life of humans. Then the Dalai Lama goes on to say, it is crucial to be mindful of death, to contemplate that you will not remain long in this life. If you are not aware of death, you will fail to take advantage of this special human life that you have already attained. It is meaningful since based on it, important effects can be accomplished. Analysis of death is not for the sake of becoming fearful, but to appreciate this precious lifetime during which you can perform many important practices. So 
I'm interested to hear from you all kind of what you what you think. I mean, was this uh, is this too morbid or are you comfortable with this or just what what kind of um, thoughts do you have? Yeah, that's one thing that the, um, the Tibetan Rinpoche was was saying, essentially, that you don't really, in his in his mind, you don't really begin to live until you um, uh, accept and um, know death. That you don't really begin to live, truly. And I can, I can see that. I mean, I, um, I am just so much more aware um, through this practice and through the acceptance of what is. <laughs> I'm just so much. I pay attention now. <laughs> it's really, whereas before, I, I just, I can see that I was really kind of lost in, lost in my stories and my fears and my critiquing of everything and I missed so much <laughs> so I'm very grateful for this practice does anyone else want to share yes let's go ahead and then we'll
Um, well, I actually, um, I, I think you should continue to practice that. And um, I actually, I, I do practice with the um, idea that death is imminent. And, um, and actually in this book, the Dalai Lama has a lot of advice for how to practice with, with that. Um, and uh, um, he actually uh, encourages you to, um, as you practice, to, to wish for a, um, a death with, with, with no suffering so that you can actually be present for your death. And, and then he actually, I don't, you know, describes all the steps. And I mean, it's a very, it's a very Tibetan thing, you know, and I, I mean, I don't, I don't believe in it, but I mean, it could be true. I mean, I don't really know. None of us really know. But um, but there are ways of practicing with it, and um, so if you're interested, you might pick up this book. Um, and um, there is actually a practice in our tradition, the Vipassana tradition, where um, uh, monks and and serious practitioners will actually uh, have a picture uh, of a corpse, and will will sit with that. Or, and actually, if, if you have access to a real corpse, they're interested in just in sitting with it. The reality of it, you know, <laughs> brings it home. <laughs> so, yeah, there are definitely ways to practice. And I encourage you to continue. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was in meditation practice group, and uh, the woman leading it was organizing for the uh, Order of Interbeing, which is Thich Nhat Hanh's uh, group. And he has many, many books that he's written. I, I can't remember the name of it, unfortunately, but mm-hmm. she was working out in one of them, and he had tons of exercises like this. And the, the woman was leading us through an exercise of imagine, you know, the person that made you suffer, that's made you suffer. Was that kind of fun? Um, um, and some of them are related to this. <laughs> um, 
Thank you. Yeah, and there's uh, no better way of cultivating compassion for someone that you are not particularly fond of by than by imagining them as as uh, in their death. And all of a sudden, it's kind of like all those trivial things that you have going on between you and that person. Really trivial. I mean, when it comes right down to it, they kind of fall away. You begin to really see the person clearly. As, as another being, a, um, a um, another uh, comrade in birth and life and sickness and old age and death. We're all together in this, aren't we? <laughs> Thank you. So, was there was someone else. Uh, there was someone else over there who had their hand raised. Yes. Well, um, from my experience, most young people seem to feel like they're immortal. <laughs> they just don't seem to have a concept of, of that they will die. I mean, it just that's why they do all these incredibly daring things often. Um, the, um, the darker side, um, I'm not sure. I think, um, I think it just comes from just total despair in life and... Um, just from what I, what I've read um, about you know some of these young people, um, they just feel so empty. And um, I mean, it's kind of very painful to to think about them um, being so young and so um, to their minds empty and in despair when. Um, certainly they have the same all of us as human beings I believe have this 
this uh, same special inner space of um, peacefulness and non-judgmental awareness and they just are unable to connect with that and unable to unable to connect with even the simpler pleasures in life so I don't really I guess I don't really have anything deeper to say about that certainly is um, in our culture is happening um, often these days and I, I guess I would say that because there's so much emphasis on material, um, there are many young people, I think, who um, can see through that, but they don't seem to be able to see through deeply enough <laughs> to see that there's something else underlying. I don't know. Yes? Yeah, I know. I know. It's very. Um, it has been very sanitized in our culture, and uh, as the article said, taboo, taboo talk, topic. Yes. Yeah, I am currently reading Joe's book, "Yes, You're the Hand," and I also got another book out of the library. Being nobody, going no place. And uh, this, uh, he, he generally follows along with the same trend of thought that's in Joel's book, but he gets pretty graphic about things. And it's almost terrifying in a way. I mean, it seems like this process, this practice, what we're doing is accelerating our own death. I mean, it's like having a premature death, like we're dying before we die in the world as we know it. It's kind of like, it's kind of like that I am, as I practice, I'm accelerating my own death. Or at least life as I've known it. So it's kind of terrifying. Right. And, and when I kind of wondered is, is uh, I wondered if anybody ever felt kind of terrified a little bit about it. Sure. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's very profound. Mm-hmm. It's extremely profound. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thoughts that I'm reading. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm practicing and I'm learning to concentrate. I just wonder if I'm going to continue on this track. I mean, mm-hmm. so far it's fun, but I just wonder if I'm going to reach some point where I actually get terrified. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just wondered if other people experience something like that, especially people that have been joining me for 
Well, um, I can say that, you know, for myself, yeah, there are some terrifying moments. I mean, what's happening is that the, uh, the person who was asleep um, is dying. <laughs> the person who was asleep is dying. And um, so that can, that can be a frightening, um, a frightening thought from time to time. But uh, I, would not, uh, I would not trade. I mean, I would not want to live my life totally asleep. I just know that, I mean, why would I, why would I want to miss things? <laughs> um, Richard? I would also speculate that if, if I were to finally attain liberation, it would be a completely fearless thing in the face of anything you could imagine happening. There would be an incredible conviction that everything is really at It's okay. And I, I, so I think, that, I think it can be terrifying, but I think that the, the fruit of practice is taken to the ultimate would be state beyond any kind of personal Well, I, I can tell you why I practice, and I practice uh, to uh, become free of, of the suffering that um, I've experienced in my life through trying to control things and trying to keep the pain and the grief away and keep all the pleasurable things going and, um, and to just, uh, it's a... Uh, Really, a sense of relief to, when I when when I am able to just be accept, accepting whatever happens, and um, and even you know on the topic of death. I mean, when you accept um, and get comfortable with the idea of death, what else is there to be afraid of, <laughs> really? <laughs> you know. Yes. Thank <laughs> you.
Thank you. So, um, yes. I mean, this, this practice is, is almost like what you carry without to the nth degree by saying you don't really exist. <laughs> I mean, it's like we're not providing, yeah. we're not our pain. We're separating ourselves from the mind. Mm -hmm. It's like you don't really exist, at least physically. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's uh, well, let's say it's nothing else, very mysterious. It, it is very mysterious. And, and you also, you want to be careful not to turn it over and over in your mind too much, you know, because the mind kind of has its own slant on things. But to just, just keep sitting and, and being present um, and... Um, you know, not getting too thought up, do too caught up in your thoughts about it, and just kind of let let things unfold and get carried along and <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> so why don't we um, why don't we just take a few minutes and just sit um, and just kind of reflect on our special gift here as human beings in this life. Let none deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her, protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Thank you all.